Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm your host, Paul Hodes, with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We are broadcast on terrestrial radio at WKXLAM and FM. We are podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Check out our website at beyondpoliticspodcast.com. Become a fan, subscribe, listen often. Well, it certainly proved true in the election of 2020 that as go African-American voters, so go or goes the Democratic Party. Uh, we saw that uh, for sure in 2020. And, and as goes the Democratic Party, and so go elections in the entire balance of power in America. That means it is absolutely crucial to understand the opinions and priorities of African-American voters. And today on Beyond Politics, uh, we're speaking with Alex Ivey and Mario Brassard of Global Strategies Group, who have a great new in-depth report uh, about the opinions and priorities of African-American voters. And they're here to tell us the facts. So. Gentlemen, let me just kick it off by asking kind of an overarching question. What are the big takeaways from, from your new report? What do folks need to know? Well, Paul, uh, first, thank you for having us on, on the show. It's a real honor to be here. And um, as it relates to the survey work that we've recently done, um, the big headline, I mean, it, it was a pretty wide ranging study that we conducted, but if I were to, to select one big finding, I think the big headline is really President Joe Biden. Um, you know, you'll recall that last year during the election, uh, Trump and, and, and the Republicans tried to, to paint Joe Biden is Sleepy Joe. And, uh, and actually, Sleepy Joe um, sure has had an ambitious and, and proactive agenda since uh, taking office in January. And Black voters really like it. Um, first, he focused on, on getting shots in arms, which in large part was a big reason why he got elected. Um, then he got direct aid into bank accounts of, of real people all across the country. Um, and now he's trying to make a, a once in a generation investment in our infrastructure and infrastructure defined sort of broadly. Um, but he's also talking about issues of police reform um, he has made it a point to try and root out systemic bias throughout government and certainly in his administration. Um, and Black voters are, are paying attention and they are uh, really um, are reacting well to his agenda. He, he has 86% favorability among uh, African-Americans nationally. And, you know, in America these days, you hardly find um, a majority support for, for uh, politicians and policies. But here he is in the Black community, and he's approaching 90% favorability, which is 
almost unheard of and certainly um, rivals, if, if not uh, exceeds, where uh, other presidents, including uh, Barack Obama, were at this point in their presidency. So as a follow-up to that, as you noted, Americans' trust in government and in institutions is at record low. According to Pew polling, it's below 20% uh, overall American faith in government. And so here we have a situation where African-American voters have super duper high levels of faith in the president of the United States. As a political matter, how can Democrats best leverage that, that high degree of trust with African-American voters as we head into the midterms in 2022? Well, it's interesting because um, in, in the poll that, that we've, we've recently came out of the field with, um, not only does, does it find that Joe Biden is doing well, but relative to other leading Democrats, folks like Nancy Pelosi and, and Chuck Schumer, um, he is lapping the field. Uh, and so, you know, he's not going to be on the ballot in, in 2022, but Democrats are going to need to lean into um, Joe Biden and, and his accomplishments if they want to see um, turnout uh, approach where it was uh, last year, and if they want to see that turnout actually pull the lever for Democrats. They're, they're going to have to defer to Biden's prerogatives and, and, and his priorities, because at this juncture, he really is the one figure um, that, that Black voters have placed their trust in. And um, in order for them to sort of, you know, leverage that support, um, Biden is going to have to have important, meaningful successes um, in the next 18 months that um, Democrats can take to the electorate and show that they're actually accomplishing things. Um, so Biden really is the key. And it's not that um, trust in institutions has, has miraculously changed. It is just the uh, hope and, and trust that these voters tend to have specifically in Joe Biden. And we think that part of the reason that they do have that trust is because he was Barack Obama's vice president and he stood by him um, through those eight years. And that really goes a long way. And I think it also speaks to um, why voters and black voters in South Carolina really energized his campaign and set him on that glide path toward the nomination uh, a little over a year ago. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think if you're a down ballot Democrat, you really have to hitch your wagon to the Biden administration in 2022 saying, you know, our president has a mandate to govern. And, you know, by electing me to Congress, the, the Senate, so on and so forth, we're gonna protect that mandate to govern and we're going to give them a real fair shot to actually get things accomplished um, rather than sort of succumbing to partisan gridlock. So really hitching your wagon to the president um, is something that I would recommend every down-ballot down Democrat do, particularly um, in sort of majority-minority districts. Um, and if you are an elected official currently, you know, in the House or Senate, um, to the extent that you're able in every district is indeed different 
Um, be unapologetic about this, about your support for the president and uh, tout the votes that you took in line with the Biden administration. You know, I voted 96% of the time with uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, um, so on and so forth. You know, it, it brings to mind the uh, fabulous Republican attack point of, uh, hey, he voted 98% of the time with Nancy Pelosi. And I think, as you've said, the answer is, um, well, actually, I voted 98% of the time with President Biden. Let's keep riding with Biden, folks. Um, that seems to be uh, one of the one of the answers. You know, there's there's been a lot of discussion and analysis, including by us on the show, about the fact that the Democratic Party is, for lack of a better word, a coalition. And it's a pretty broad coalition from left to center right. Um, there's no one uh, there's no one homogenous base of the Democratic Party like there is for Republicans. Um, and and so in that wide ranging coalition, it's interesting that Joe Biden, most notably in the speech he gave the other evening to the joint session, uh, followed a very, very socially progressive agenda, um, saying to the LGBTQ community, uh, especially young people, your president has your back. I, I don't think there could be anything more socially progressive um, at this time uh, uh, for, for a president to say. Now, uh, in your report, you quote Charles Blow, who noted that uh, Black people haven't been as socially progressive as the rest of the party. I'm curious to know what you found in your research about the views and especially the priorities of, of Black voters in that regard, particularly those who are less inclined to vote and, and how they line up or don't with uh, the rest of the Democratic Party and especially the um, socially progressive wing of the Democratic Party? Well, Paul, I think the first thing to understand is that opinion in the Black community is not a monolith. Um, you know, there is a wide variety of, of a, a wide variety of attitudes uh, around all the issues of the day um, within the Black community. And one of the, uh, the more interesting things that, that we tested in the survey um, was around ideology. Um, we presented uh, five different imaginary platforms, imaginary party platforms to, uh, to respondents and asked them to react to all of them uh, individually and then sort of select uh, which among them they would sort of align themselves with. And um, those, those different party platforms um, ranged from sort of what you might consider to be the most progressive or the most liberal sort of uh, platforms and issues to the most conservative. Um, we, we presented a sort of slimmed down version of, uh, of MAGA. We called them uh, the folks who gravitated toward, toward this platform, uh, Black MAGAs. It's sort of the 2020 version of, uh, of conservatism. Um, one that talks about stopping illegal immigration, um, putting America first, fighting identity politics, and standing up to political correctness. 
And um, almost two thirds of all African-Americans felt like there were things in that platform that they could support. Um, we, we asked them uh, about a platform that we thought was more sort of um, traditionally democratic or black democratic, um, socially conservative, and as well as being fiscally liberal. Um, things like defending the American system of free enterprise, um, promoting traditional family values, uh, protecting religious liberty and, and raising taxes on big corporations and the wealthy in order to strengthen the social safety net. And uh, upwards of 80% of, of black voters uh, across the country sort of gravitated toward, uh, toward that platform. We had a, a third with, that we thought was more sort of centrist. Um, we called it the globalist black centrist group, folks who support advancing social progress, including civil rights, um, women's rights, including abortion rights, um, LGBTQ rights, um, cutting the deficit, and working with the international community through free trade and constructive diplomacy. And again, about 80% of African Americans found something in there that they could gravitate, gravitate towards. Um, a fourth sort of imaginary party platform we called, <clears throat> excuse me, we called um, the Democratic Black Socialist Platform. And this is sort of the progressive left. Um, things like putting the middle class first, um, passing universal health insurance, strengthening labor unions, uh, and breaking up big corporations, not just taxing them, but breaking up big corporations, and then raising taxes on the wealthy to support programs for those who are less well off. And again, um, around 80% of, of African-American voters across the country found something in there that they could gravitate towards. And then the final sort of imaginary platform we dubbed um, New School Black Justice Hippies. Um, these were folks who supported passing a Green New Deal, um, uh, uh, supported a federally guaranteed subsidy of $1,000 per month for every adult, essentially um, UBI, universal basic income, um, ending systemic inequality and promoting social and economic justice. And again, approximately 80% plus of African-American voters found things in there that they could gravitate to toward. Um, now, we sort of anticipated that and so at, after presenting all these different platforms, we asked uh, respondents if they had to choose one of those five to support uh, or parties to be a member of, which one would they choose? And um, not surprisingly, the Black MAGA party um, had the lowest proportion uh, of, of African-American voters selecting them at 7%. Um, the old school black Democrats, the sort of socially conservative, fiscally liberal group, were at about one in five, 19% of black voters across the country selected that one. 21% um, selected that centrist 
globalist black centrist platform, but then the more progressive uh, platforms, the democratic black socialists, 27% um, of all black voters gravitated toward that platform if they had to choose, and 26% of, uh, of black voters selected that new school black justice hippies platform that I outlined um, to you. So, you know, this just goes to, to show that there's a lot of fluidity across ideology within the black community. And that, again, just to reiterate, you know, attitudes within the black community are not a monolith. And there are, um, there's a wide variety of opinion within, within the group. Now, the, the one area that black voters uh, tend, of all stripes tend to agree uh, on, whether that be older black voters versus younger black voters, um, higher propensity black voters versus lower propensity voters, um, lib those who identify as liberal or, or moderate or even conservative, is an, an agenda that focuses primarily on two things. Um, one is Black economic empowerment, and two, um, to proactively take steps to end systemic discrimination. Now, whether that, that means police reform um, or ending mass incarceration, um, discrimination when it comes to access to capital, etc. Um, you know, there are so many systemic issues to choose from, but Black voters need to see that this sort of attention um, is a priority for Democrats who are in power now. You know, Black voters played a large role, as we outlined, in helping them access that power, and Black voters need to see that that power is being leveraged to accomplish the things that they most care about. Well, I think we can all agree that the a great innovation to come out of your report is the creation of the demographic term, new school black justice hippies. That has to be the new politics term of the year. Um, let's, let's talk for a second about the political dynamic around Black Lives Matter. We obviously, this has been front and center in American politics over the last year. And we've seen an interesting dynamic where last summer we saw record high polling support for the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And that included notably support from white Americans, but that overall level of support, that uh, cross-racial level of support has fallen over the course of the year. And it's begun to assume the pattern, well, you guys are the polling experts, not, not me, but it, it sure looks like the kinds of partisan polling patterns that we see on other issues. Now, recently, James Carville, the noted Democratic strategist, gave a much-discussed interview in which we said, quoting here, we have to talk about race, we should talk about racial injustice. What I'm saying is we need to do it without using jargony language that's unrecognizable to most people, including most Black people. And his point seemed to be that a lot of the language we use around the goals of the Black Lives Matter movement is viewed in democratic political circles as kind of a problem, kind of not well communicated and not politically effective. We've certainly heard that from members of Congress like Abigail Spanberger and Connor Lamb, who have expressed concern about the salience, the political salience of ideas like defunding the police. So 
based on your research and your expertise, do Democrats have a communications problem when it comes to speaking effectively about Black Lives Matter, policing, and race? Well, so, I'm, I'm not sure. Ahead. I'm not sure that I would say that they have a that Democrats have a communication problem. I would I would probably argue that advocates uh, for those sorts of positions have have created a bit of a problem in that the branding of defund the police has uh, was is probably among the worst branding exercises in a, a quite a long time. I mean, it sends the wrong message truthfully because they're not even asking necessarily to take all the money away from the police, but that is the way that Republicans are gonna frame it. And last year, it hung like an albatross around the necks of many Democratic candidates. As a party, I think the Democrats have um, less of a communications problem and more of a credibility problem uh, when it comes to black voters. Black voters, uh, you know, showed up last year, voted for Biden, showed up again in Georgia and, and turned Washington over to, uh, to the Democrats. And at the same time, almost half of black voters in our poll told us that they felt that the Democratic Party takes black votes for granted and does not do enough to help the black community. So in many ways, the way that they voted last year was much more hopeful than, than pragmatic or practical as black voters are often described uh, as. And so the, the real problem for, um, for Democrats is not necessarily the communications, but it's the credibility. And that, again, um, brings me back to the notion of Democrats needing to lean into um, Joe Biden and his agenda, particularly his agenda around um, police reform, around uh, rooting out systemic equality, and, 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 and a variety of, of related social issues. So, yeah, I'll just jump in and say that, you know, I personally thought Carville was dead on the money. I thought he was exactly right. Um, what he's talking about is sort of very online people who are, you know, deep into quote unquote Twitter discourse. And they're using all these, you know, ivory tower faculty language uh, terms that don't connect with people and don't really meet them where they are. They don't reflect their lived experience and it can sort of be alienating. Um, and that's not what you want in communications. Um, you know, with that said, I don't think that Democrats um, should abandon the content of it, just the framing. So Democrats can for sure talk about police brutality, lack of opportunity, you know, society being unequal or being an uneven playing field. Um, and you can do that without falling back on platitudes or jargon that people don't really understand. Um, and by speaking in that plain and direct way, um, rather than in that Twitter lingo, you're also connecting with the infrequent voters, right? In our survey, we found that infrequent voters aren't really on Twitter. That's the frequent voters. That's the people that are already showing up to the polls. So you don't need to adopt this language to you know, galvanize and activate them. 
you need to talk in, you know, plain direct language to get the infrequent voters out. Well, Alex and Maria, we have a very short time uh, left. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm going to ask you a lightning round question, uh, which is, what is the one thing that President Biden and the Democrats need to do most if they want to maximize African-American voter engagement, turnout, and support in 2022 and beyond? Lightning round, go. I would just say that they need to keep their campaign promises to the Black community. Um, it, it, being a party that keeps its promises to Black folks will be much more effective, we think, than expanding even early, early mail-in and mail-in voting or making voter registration automatic or ending state voter ID laws. Keeping their promises is paramount. Exactly. Go big. Like, that's the good news. He doesn't have to do anything fancy. He just has to do what he said he would do. Like, that's the bread and butter of politics. Just execute on your promises and people are going to want to believe in you and show up because you actually did that the last time. The report is promises made must be promises kept. That's actually very apt for the closing round message from Mario and Alex. Thank you, gentlemen, so much for being with us on Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Beyond Politics, broadcast on WKXL, available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Matt Robeson, joined by my co-host, former Congressman Paul Hodes. In the last segment, we were speaking with two accomplished scholars about their new report, Promises Made Must Be Promises Kept, African-American Voter Priorities 2021. Now, look, you said at the top of that segment, the, the idea that as go African-American voters, so goes the Democratic Party. As goes the Democratic Party, so goes the balance of power in America. There's, it, it's, it's sort of fundamental. I'm reminded of a book from about 25 years ago called How the Irish Saved Civilization. And thinking back a year and, and several months to the decision by Jim Clyburn, South Carolina Congressman, your old colleague and friend, Jim Clyburn, to endorse Joe Biden and essentially the African-American voters of South Carolina to line up behind Joe Biden and effectively send him on his way to becoming the nominee of the Democratic Party, which worked and got us out of the Trump nightmare we were living through. I don't think it's going too far to say that African-American voters saved civilization. And I was just, it was totally fascinating to hear these two experts and their new polling. What did you take away from that conversation? Well, what was your biggest takeaway? Well, first of all, because I'm Irish, I think it's only fair to thank you for giving me credit for saving civilization. I forgot uh, that you're part of the notable Jewish-Irish sect uh, of uh, Ireland. Go on. It's true. I, you know, I'm married to an Irish woman, Peg O'Hode. So there you go. But in all, in all, in all seriousness, you know, you're, you're absolutely right to bring up Jim Clyburn, who uh, perhaps played the most important role of any person in uh, the in America, in in what eventually was a Biden victory, uh, because I mean I was with Biden in New Hampshire, uh, and it was desultory to say the least. It was no crowds, no mojo, a tired candidate who just didn't seem to be pulling 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 away or even holding his own all that much in a in a crowded field, 
And that changed completely dramatically because Jim Clyburn saw what I think ultimately uh, became the truth of this election, which was that only Joe Biden, only Joe Biden was capable of defeating Donald Trump. Uh, any of the other candidates all had either baggage or detriments or were too far left um, uh, or had various other impediments that Biden did not suffer from. And people were desperate for a calming, honest, uh, bring us back together vision. Um, and Clyburn, Clyburn saw that and he also understood that uh, Joe Biden uh, resonated with black voters um, and that he understood what our guests in the last segment um, confirmed for us essentially that while the while black voters in America are certainly not monolithic in general they are at least by a slim majority more on the leaning toward the progressive side than the conservative or centrist side, uh, but even the centrist side and even the progressive side for black voters were attracted to Joe Biden. Now, he certainly cemented that after he won the primary by selecting Kamala Harris as a vice president, that in terms of campaign promises made and campaign promises kept, it is not lost, I think, on uh, Black voters that he was Barack Obama's vice president and trusted. Um, and he chose as a woman and a woman of color as his vice presidential candidate. That was perhaps the first big signal from Joe Biden that he intended not only just to make promises, but keep promises, including to the black community. And he was clear throughout the campaign about his priorities, about his sense of the historic nature of, of systemic inequality, uh, inequality in, in, in this country, and that he was going to uh, do something about that. And at least so far, Jim Clyburn's bet seems to have paid off. Yeah, that that definitely struck out to me. And it was so interesting. Mario Brassard was saying that the sense of African-American voters, it's, it's often stereotyped by analysts and pundits as, well, Black voters are pragmatic. And he he had a twist on that. He he said that's that's not really what's going on. The the preponderance of the driver for African American support for Joe Biden was much more about hope, and that really aligns. About a year back, we had a terrific author and scholar, Davin Phoenix, who wrote The Anger Gap based on his original research, showing that African American voters, despite some stereotypes are actually much less motivated by anger in their politics than white voters. The, the, the politics of anger, the politics of grievance are actually a, a white voter phenomenon. The politics of, yes, maybe there's some pragmatism, but the politics of hope is much more an African-American voter phenomenon. And so what I was hearing from Alex and Mario was, first of all, that's what was going on here with Joe Biden. And now the onus is on him to, as you say, follow through on that and make sure that the promises made are promises kept. 
um, that, that, that was a big deal. The other thing that really resonated with me was, was Alex pointing out that James Carville is onto something in his much quoted, much analyzed Vox interview in which he said, we've got a wokeness problem in this country. And it's not so much that the priorities are misplaced. It's not so much the idea that, yeah, there, there is systemic inequality. There is. There are problems in the way that policing is done. There are. The issue is the way these things are being communicated by advocates are, as Mario put it, an albatross around the neck of Democratic candidates. We clearly need to think very long and very hard. And look, this isn't unusual. This isn't a criticism of, for example, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, the organizers uh, of of that movement. A lot of social movements go through a period of trying out messaging, trying, trying out, feeling out their, their, their issue landscape, how they're going to talk about it, what their positioning is. That's not unusual. That makes sense. But obviously, the stakes are extremely high here on this issue. And so that seems to be a priority to, to work together with advocates and Democratic Party leaders who are aligned, who are basically on the same side here, and to figure out what's the most politically productive way, what's the most effective way to talk about these issues to try and reach across the political spectrum. So not to beat, uh, as they say, the dead horse, uh, but you and I have um, not only spent time and treasure on the issue of messaging and communication in the Democratic Party, um, and it has come reared its ugly head again here. Uh, and as you say, this is not a criticism of BLM. Uh, I, I don't. I don't think anybody went out and tested. Um, uh, you know, a group, group did a group focus testing of defund the police before people, um, in their rage, their justifiable, legitimate um, upset. Uh, started talking about defunding the police. Now, just just so we're clear, in case folks, you know, haven't weren't around, weren't really paying attention. What was meant by defund the police was let's shift resources to uh, methods of uh, working in the community that will be more effective and constructive than arresting people with mental illnesses or or having the police intervene. Now, that's a long complicated way of saying something that ultimately should be reduced to a good, effective message. Uh, because it is not, it, it, it's about communication and words matter. And words matter in politics, especially in an information saturated digital environment in which people are bombarded by information and generally will have uh, the attention span to to understand a bumper sticker, but not necessarily to dive a lot deeper. So it makes it important for Democrats to get their act together around messaging and communication, whether that is messaging and communication with the black black voters or white voters or all voters. Uh, Democrats have always had a messaging problem. We think we're we think we're smarter than everybody else. We use, and I include myself, jargony big words when uh, little words and straight talk will do. And uh, Democrats ought to get with the program about how to find out what words work and use them. You know, we've joked before that Democrat can be loosely translated as repeats, facts, 
smugly. But I want to give a real world example of the kinds of consequences of this communication. It sounds like, you know, okay, we have a communication problem, no big whoop. It actually matters a lot when it turns in real world terms. And what I mean is the inability to communicate effectively about this spectrum of issues that can loosely be characterized as structural inequality, racism, the Black Lives Matter related issues of policing and access to capital, that has created a political divide or it's, it's, it's fallen into, as I was noting in the earlier segment, the, the political divide that we find ourselves in overall as a country. What that means is that it's become politically impossible to deal with real problems. For example, on The Great Ideas Show, which is airing the same day as this show that we're recording right now, I have an expert, Simon Clark from the Center for American Progress, who's talking about the number one security threat that the US faces. Do you have any guess what it is? I think you're talking about white supremacist terrorism. Not only are you right, but you are echoing the Trump version, the, the Trump Department of Homeland Security, who in October 2020 said that racially and ethnically motivated violent extremists, particularly white supremacist extremists, are the most persistent and lethal threat here in America. And when the Center for Strategic International Studies did an analysis of 893 terrorist plots and attacks in the US over the last quarter century, they found that far right domestic terrorism, again, overlapping significantly with white supremacist extremist groups, accounted for about two thirds of the attacks and plots in the US in 2019, over 90% in the first six months of 2020. The point is that when issues like this get caught up in the partisan divide, they're easily dismissed by Republicans, by conservatives as, oh, there's just more woke liberal politics again, white supremacists, not an issue. You've seen this happen with the January 6th insurrection. You can't even call it a violent insurrection to Republicans anymore because they will dispute that it was violent or that it was an insurrection. They will certainly dispute that it was tied up with white supremacist groups and they don't want any association whatsoever between white supremacist groups and insurrection and Donald Trump. Whereas in fact, those links are very strong and very obvious and very full of proof. So it's a problem that we can't find the right language to communicate effectively about these issues because that's what leads to them falling into the partisan divide, which means we're awfully hamstrung in our ability to confront them. Uh, yeah, you know, you and I spent a few years of our lives um, figuring out that there actually is a method to figure out what language really works and then using it. Uh, Democrats seem loath to actually uh, adopt the techniques that might help Democrats figure out the the the, the best messaging and communication. You know, one of the things I got 
you know, I, I was being kind of cute in the last segment, thinking about uh, how do Democrats run in 2022? We're up against, we're going to be up against the historical imperative, it seems, of the American electorate to say to the party in power, nah, you've had your two years. We're going to, we're going to really, now, now we'll make things difficult for the president because after all, we're voters and our attention span is so short. It doesn't matter that you haven't had time to fully implement what you want to implement. Uh, we, it's time to rebalance. At least that's what, that, that's what usually happens. And the question is whether Democrats and uh, Joe Biden can, can upend that historical trend, because it seems pretty firmly entrenched. The, it, it, and especially because in 47 states, Republican legislators um, are uh, being driven probably by, I will say, certainly by a nationally organized movement to enact voter suppression laws. And the voter suppression laws they're trying to act may or may not be constitutional. They may or may not backfire on Republicans who don't seem to care whether they'll backfire because a number of these efforts are being taken in states where Trump won handily. So let's make it more difficult for the Trump voters to vote. I mean, it makes no sense. But not that much that the Republicans stand for in my book seem to make sense, but we're up against a, a new landscape in 2022. Uh, you know, I mean, you look at Georgia, which was very important for Joe Biden in his win. And right now it's going to be uh, against the law to give food and drink and sustenance to a voter standing in line to vote after they've closed the polling places and taken away the ballot boxes. But I digress. The question is, how do you communicate all of that? It may turn out that if Biden's agenda it passes, at least in large part, and we've already seen big success in terms of COVID, the economy is beginning to rebound, we've got some very big reconciliation packages come up, that, that to keep the House and to keep and maybe uh, to preserve our slim majority in the Senate, that all people should say is, I've been riding with Biden, let's keep it going. Well, here's your moment of Zen for the day. Maybe the way to try to win in 2022 is don't try. Now, I'm being a little tongue in cheek about that, but one of the things that I thought was pretty cool that I heard from Alex in the last segment was this idea of just follow through, just just do the things do that your you job. laid out. Right. Just enact the agenda. And look, it works both ways, which is kind of what I mean by don't try. That's probably your best political path right? That's, that's certainly the best way, it seems, according to Mario and Alex, to goose African-American turnout and to try and take a case to the voters. But I think there's also a somewhat fatalistic recognition among Democrats right now that the historical trend is pretty hard to buck. And if you look at the special election in Texas that happened over the weekend, again, it's a special election. You, you can't read too much into these things. But there was not a ton of Democratic voter enthusiasm, which is why Democrats got locked out of the top two places and aren't going to make it to the runoff. You know, it's likely that voter enthusiasm is going to be down. It's likely that progressive and Democratic turnout is going to be down. It's likely that Democrats are going to lose the House and possibly the Senate. And so I think that there is a recognition from the Biden administration, if this is our shot, let's, let's be Alexander Hamilton about this, 
Let's not throw away our shot. This is our time to get some things done. And the politics over time will take care of themselves. The arc of the political and the policy universe is long. It bends toward justice. Let's get done what we can get done now. Well, it is certainly clear that Joe Biden is got his priorities firmly in place. Deal with COVID, number one. Number two, deal with COVID. Number three, deal with COVID. Uh, number four, after we deal with COVID, the economy will take care of itself. And number five, if I can get the rest of my agenda, uh, so be it. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try right now. I'm not waiting. I'm moving as fast as I can because I may not have much after 2022. Right. And by the way, Mario said that's one of the reasons that African-American support for Joe Biden is up in the 90s is he's focused on the right things and he's focused like a laser beam. And that's that's the right thing to do. And yes, is there a wish list a mile long? Sure. Right. And we will try. But let's let's get focused on the core. That's the best policy. And that's probably the best politics for 2022. This is Beyond Politics. I'm Paul Hodes with my co-host, Matt Robeson. We have enjoyed this show. We'll be back next week with another segment of Beyond Politics.